Amen. It's good to be together today. I, I was thinking uh, this morning, and Douglas and I were talking, we don't even remember what happened last Easter. Honestly, I, it's all a blur. Does anybody remember? Like, I don't even remember if I preached. Is there anybody who remembers who preached Easter Sunday last year? Reynolds? Was it Reynolds? It was the online service with the whole family. That's what we were trying to figure out, right? We don't even remember what happened a year ago, right? It's been such a blur. It's been such a crazy year. So here's, here's the reality for me. I got two years of pent-up resurrection celebration ready to come out next week. I'm so fired up about next week, and I, I'm, I'm excited because I think there's a couple things that are going to happen. One, we're, we're going to have some baptisms, and I just feel like, man, if there's ever a year to get baptized on Easter, this is the year. If there's ever a year where we're going to say new life has come and the old is gone, it's this year. Can I get an amen? Right? Like, like if there's ever a time, so I don't know, if you're hidden here and you've never been baptized, you better Find Tyler after the service and hit him up, right? And say, I'm ready. This year is the year I'm doing it. If you got friends that need to be here on Easter Sunday, I feel like we as a culture like, just need to be together and celebrate. There's never a time when people are more open to an invitation to church, I think, than this year on Easter. In my entire lifetime, I'm 46 years old, I think this is the best opportunity you've ever had in your entire life to invite somebody to come to church next Sunday. So let's do it, all right? Let's, let's get some people here that don't know Jesus. Let's connect to the community. Let's, let's, let's celebrate together. How many of you are going to be indoors next week? Not very many. That's what we were thinking. There are baptisms happening in that service, right? So you might want to come. How many of you are going to be outdoors next week with us? How many of you are going to de decide what the weather's like, if it's too hot, if it's rainy? You know? uh, those of you who are at home online, next week's a great time to come back to church. It's a great time to come back to church. Um, we love y'all and we're excited about next week. Uh, we're, we're in a series right now called The Last Words where we've been talking about the final words of Jesus. And today I'm going to talk about the final words of Jesus on the cross, but I'll give you a little teaser. They're not his final words if you've read the whole story. And so there's final words that we're going to talk about today as he's on the cross, but they're not his final words forever. Uh, when I was tw in my 20s, I, I was in ministry, I... I, I wrote two books when I was in my 20s. Uh, and I, here's, what, here's my suggestion to you if you're in your 20s. Don't write something when you're in your 20s <laughs> because it's there forever and other people can read it and they think that it, you think the same way in your 20s that you do in your 40s. And I know that there's 20-year-olds that are brilliant and have brilliant things to say. I was not one of those when I was 20, I just happened to work at one of the largest churches in the country, and they knew that if I released a book, everybody in my church would buy it. And so just by me writing a book and the people in my youth group buying it, we would already sell 10,000 copies, and they wanted the money. And so they called me, and they made me think I was brilliant, right? They made me think I had these brilliant ideas and that these brilliant things to say, and I, and I didn't at all. Um, so I wrote two books. They're both out of print now. You can go to Amazon. You cannot find them. Please don't try and find them. I don't want you to read them. I, I, don't, like, I don't even know if there's anything in there redeeming at all. Um, but I wrote two books, and, and I hated writing. I don't know if you've ever had to like Some of you who are in school had to write long papers. Uh, I don't know if you've ever written a blog or had to write something for a publication or, or those kinds of things. I like teaching because when I teach, I just think something and I say it. 
and it just comes out. When you write, like every word is scrutinized. An average book is 90,000 words. That's a lot of words to scrutinize over. That's a lot of words to say, well, maybe we could say it this way. Maybe we should say it this way. Maybe we should say this here and this here and this here and this here. And so when you write a book, you have an editor. And the editor is the person you hate the most in the world when you're writing a book. Because it's that person's, like you send them something, you're like, oh, this is good. I like this. I'm finally getting somewhere. And they're like, this is terrible. Or you got to redo all of it. And that everything that I would write would be returned to me with just red everywhere in it. Uh, and, and I finally got to the point, I was like, why don't you just write it, right? <laughs> like, just pretend like you're me and write the book for me. I hated writing. Uh, but here's the thing that I loved about writing. There was a day when I pressed send on the final copy that I had spent like a year on. That was a good day. And you know what the best day was? A box showed up at my front door, and I opened the box and inside of it, I actually tried to find some this morning. I don't even think I have copies of my own books. That's how much I treasure those. I looked for them this morning. I don't even know where they are. I don't even know. I, I don't even think I have a copy of them. Sarah, do we have any copies of them? Yeah, there's, they're not around anywhere. Thanks for treasuring those, honey. Uh, we, we got nothing. We got nothing. But I opened this box, and on this box, there was an actual book that said Ben Hardman on the front of it. And there was something about that moment that was like, I did it. I finished something, something significant. I had spent a year of my life laboring over this, and it was finally finished. One Pulitzer Prize winner was asked, when did you become a writer? And he said, I didn't become a writer when my first book was published. I didn't become a writer when I won my first award. I didn't become a writer when the day that somebody decided to pay me to write. I became a writer the day that I woke up every morning and I went to my computer and I started writing. I just did the work, and, and that day when something finally came and showed up and there was something I could put in my hands that was like, I did it, was amazing. I think I cried a little bit about my terrible book that I had written that nobody, I'm sure my mom has a copy somewhere. Mom, I love you. Uh, Red Auerbach, the coach, famous Hall of Fame coach of the Boston Celtics, used to do something. When Boston was up uh, in games, and he didn't do this all the time, but he did it in big games, when Boston was up by a certain amount of points, he would, on the bench, light a victory cigar. Can you imagine? Can you imagine you're like playing against this team and you're working your tail off on the court and it's a big game and it matters and the coach has just leaned back and started smoking a cigar. And he never, he never brought it out too early. He always brought it out right on time. They never lost the game. He lit the victory cigar in, which would have been embarrassing for him. And I'm guessing that victory cigar put a little fire on the other team, so it may not have been the best strategy. But, there were, but every time, one time he did it in the, in the beginning of the third quarter of a game. The game had, it was like half over. And he was like, oh yeah, we're done. There was this moment where he said, we, we, want, we want to get there. And so today, I, I want to talk about Jesus' final words on the cross because it's significant for two reasons. It's significant because it's Jesus finishing the work that he was called to do, and it's Jesus lighting the victory cigar and saying, there's a little trash talk in here. I love it. Jesus is a little feisty of saying, I did this. It's over. It's won. It's finished. And these two final words are these final words on the cross. It's, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit. 
It's Jesus' completion of the task that was given to him. It's a completion of the calling that the Father gave to him. Jesus said, I only do what the Father tells me to do, and this is his moment of saying, I did it. It's the victory that he celebrates. And today is Palm Sunday. And I don't know about you guys, when I grew up on Palm Sunday, we had the little kids that would come in with the palm branches and they would wave them around. And there was like one kid that had to dress up like a donkey, right? Every year, it was like the fat kid had to be the donkey. I don't know why, we just like terrorized that child. But there was like one kid that was the donkey and then Mary was sitting on him. And like, where did, why, what's, why is Mary? We're confusing our metaphors here. This isn't Christmas. And, but that's what the church did on those days. There was like all this big celebration. As long as the kids look cute, we were all excited about it. But it reminds us that we can be celebrated in one moment and then put on a cross the next. It reminds us that the crowd rarely knows what's wise. It reminds us that other people's opinions of us are far less significant than the work that the Father has called us to. And Jesus never got caught up in all of these things. And so Jesus' schedule for this week is Sunday, he enters in, he's celebrated as a rival king. Monday, he flips the tables in the colluding empire's temple. Tuesday, he renders to Caesar what is, what is Caesar's, but he does it just a little bit. Wednesday, he's anointed as the true king. Thursday, he models sovereign king, servant kingship. Friday, he confounds Pilate and he's crucified. Saturday, Sabbath becomes resistance, and Sunday, he inaugurates a new empire. All of that happened in seven days. And so next Sunday, we're going to celebrate. Next Sunday, that two years of pent-up resurrection celebration that's inside of us is going to happen. We're going to go big, and we're going to do baptisms. Um, but this week, we're invited to enter into Jesus' story. We're invited to travel with him as he travels to the cross we're invited to look at his life and understand Jesus is the perfect model of humanity. Jesus is the perfect model of how to live, and so we need to pay attention to how he lives, but we also need to be a pay attention to how he dies. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, on the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place that the grave was empty and the stone was rolled away, and in varying ways, they realized the new wonder but even in that moment, they hardly realized that the world had died in the night, that what they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and with a new earth and in the semblance of the garden. God walked again in the garden, but not in the cool of the evening, this time in a new dawn. Can I get an amen? Right? In a new dawn, a new creation, something new has started. And so, so I look forward to next Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection. But here's what we have to understand. We don't get a resurrection without a cross. And so we have to look at the cross. And I've, I, I came up with a title for this morning is Learning to Die Like Jesus. Because we often talk about how do we live like Jesus? What do we do in our daily life? What's the, what do we, how do we see him in the ordinary as we just sang? But I want us to talk about how we actually die like Jesus. And there's two things in this passage that feel like incredibly good news to me that we can learn from Jesus in the way that he died. The first is that Jesus finished the work he was called by God to do. And so can we. Jesus was very clear on his calling one of the first moments he stood up in the sanctuary to preach in the synagogue, actually in his hometown, he stood up in the synagogue and as he delivered his first message, he said, God has called me to proclaim, heal, free, and restore, to set the prisoners free. 
And the people turned on him instantly. <laughs> but he had this clarity of his calling. There's these moments in Jesus' life where they wanted to anoint him as king and make him ruler over everything. They wanted him to be the ruler of a new Rome. They wanted him to overthrow the empire. They said, you're amazing, you're incredible, you're the best, we wanna follow you, we wanna give everything to you. And then there were moments where they wanted to throw him off a cliff. There were moments they wanted to stone him. And there was, was a moment where they actually crucified him. But in all of this, in the middle of all of this, when they wanted to make him king, you know what Jesus did? He retreated and sat with the Lord and sat with his father and was reminded of what his calling was. When they wanted to kill him, when the, when the, the disciples turned on him and when half of his followers stopped following him. In fact, when the most people were following Jesus, the biggest crowd, right? He had drawn the biggest crowd imaginable and then he preaches this sermon, eat my flesh, and everybody's like, I'm out, right? Like, that was fun. That guy was cool for a minute. The wine thing was spectacular. But the eating flesh thing, I'm done. And he lost half of his followers because he was so secure in his calling because he knew exactly what he was called to do while he lived. And so at the end of his life, it was easy for him to say, it is finished. My grandma, at the end of her life, called our family to her deathbed, and this was, man, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, and I'll, I'll never forget it. We went into the nursing home, it was hospice, and my kids were little at the time, and grandma hugged them and kissed them and loved them and said a little prayer for each of them, and then she called me in close, and she said, hey, I did it, this is what she said to me. She's the only person I've ever spoken to at the end of her life that said, I did it. She said, I did it. And I said, what did you do, Grandma? And she said, every one of my kids know Jesus. And every one of their kids know Jesus. And I did it. And I said, yeah, you did, Grandma. And she said, don't screw it up. Make sure they all make it. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's not, I don't, I don't know if I want that weight on me to like chase down second cousins who don't know Jesus, but, but I'll, I'll take it. And, uh, but she knew, like at the end of her life, there was this clarity, there was this peace of I did the thing that I was put here to do. I knew the calling that God had put on my life. That's why we're so passionate about awakening kingdom dreams here. I think everybody right now, here's, here's, what, here's what the entire church needs. We need a place to belong to and a dream to believe in. That's what we need. That's the hope I want restored in our country. We need a people to belong to again. We need a community to be community with, to be brothers and sisters with, and we need a dream to live for. Like I'm, I, I coach pastors on my side job, and, and as I'm coaching pastors, all of these pastors keep saying to me, like, I just need a vacation. This year has been terrible. My church hates me. I just need a break. I need a sabbatical. I need 14 weeks off. I need a, like, I need a beach and a beer. Like, that's what all of the pastors I talk to are saying right now. And, and, and this is what I'm saying to them, like, I don't know that you need a break, like a break is great, take your vacation, take your sabbatical, take your time, but I actually think what you need is you need a dream. You need something that's worth fighting for. You need something that's worth taking all the nonsense that you've taken in this year that's for. You need a, you need a dream and a vision of what you're actually called and prepared to do. And so when we say we want to awaken kingdom dreams in one another and we want to live them out in our daily life, what we're talking about is this. We want to know the thing that God has called us to do in this life. 
And we want to urge each other on to go get it. We want to hold each other's hands up when the battle is difficult. We want to stand beside each other and say, I see that in you. You can do it. And we want to be a people who actually feel like we're actually accomplishing something for the kingdom. We're not just talking about the stuff. We're not just praying about the stuff. We're not just gathering around doing the things. We're actually accomplishing God's purpose because we know his calling. So what's the one thing that you were called to do in your time here on earth? What's the thing that at your deathbed you can say, it's finished, I did it? What's the one thing that you were sent here to do? John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished is used three separate times in scripture, that phrase. The first is in Genesis 2. As God finished creation, there's this moment of completion. In Exodus chapter 40, after Moses had spent all of these chapters over and over again discussing the building of the tabernacle, there's this phrase that says, it is finished. The tabernacle, the temple of God, was finished. In Joshua 19, there's all this nonsense that goes on forever about the 12 tribes and how they're distributed and how it goes back and forth. And at the end of it, it says, it was finished. And now here's Jesus. And what's the commonality between all of these moments of it is finished? The dwelling place of God is changing in each of these places. It is finished because the garden was created as the dwelling place of God. It is finished because the temple was created, which became the dwelling place of God. It is finished because the tribes of Israel were created and the promised land became the place where God dwelled. It is finished because Jesus gave us access to the Father where we became the dwelling place of God. The finish of creation is the defeat of chaos and he brought the new world into order. The finish of the tabernacle is the defeat of absence and a new meeting place was born. The finish of the promised land is a defeat of homelessness and we're offered a place to live. And the finish of Jesus is the defeat of death. Walter Brueggemann in his book Into Your Hands says this, the Friday victory is the defeat of the power of death. The power of death that shows up in all the ways that we seek to talk us out of our God-given life and well-being. That power shows up in hostility and in violence. It shows up in pettiness and selfishness. It shows up in greed and debilitating anxiety. But it is now robbed of all of its power because Jesus has prevailed. The Friday victory is the defeat of the Roman Empire and every empire that succeeds it, including our own, that depend on muscle and military. Jesus has been on trial before the, Roman, before the Roman governor Pilate, but he has not given in and he has not been found guilty and now Rome has executed him as an enemy of the state, but it has no power to destroy his love for our world. The Friday victory is a defeat of all those who colluded among his own people, who thought they could compromise, manipulate their way to well-being, and now it is finished. It all is finished. Luke chapter 23, verse 44, says it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And while the sun's light faded, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and then Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. There's really good news that Jesus finished the job that he had been called to do, and so can we. But the other piece of good news we find here is that Jesus trusted God with everything 
even to the end. And so can we. Even at the very end, the last moment of his life, like the last breath, think about this, the very last breath Jesus takes, this is so significant. The scriptures talk about the first breath as being significant. Who breathed the first breath into Adam? God. And then in this moment, Jesus is breathing his final breath. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. That word spirit is far more connected to the word breath than it is spirit. So much of what Jesus is doing here in this, in this moment, in these seven words, as is, is we've studied the last words of Jesus, so much of it points back to the garden. Have you seen all the pictures that point back to creation? Because well, here's, the, here's what the Bible does. The Bible is the story of God putting his family back together again through Jesus. It's a picture of God restoring everything that we have broken and making it new in Jesus. He, he's creating a new dwelling place. He's creating a new place for his spirit. He's, he's creating the church. He's creating the family of God. He's creating this place where the Holy Spirit can meet us and guide us and direct us. There's these beautiful things that are happening, but there's this understanding in all of Scripture that breath was given by God and that breath was a gift from God. Uh, anybody as a kid, I, we, I think we got a picture here. Anybody as a kid try and do this in the pool as a competition? You and your friends would get in the pool and you would hold your nose and you would go under and you would see who could hold their breath the longest. Anybody, anybody do that? Not very many of you? Come on. You guys had terrible childhoods. <laughs> have some fun, guys. Like somebody, you need to, like, I don't care how old you are, go to a pool and have this competition with your friend like, when it gets warmer. You need to find a spot to do this. Uh, this is what we did. And, and, and that what you did was you'd kind of go under, and you and your friends would all go under at the same time, and you'd hold your nose, and there was always a cheater who didn't go under, but he, you know, he'd just try to cheat, or, or, or he'd go halfway and like keep his head up or something like that. But there was always these competitions of who can hold their breath the longest. The world record is 11 minutes and 35 seconds, which seems pretty remarkable. That's a long, that's a long, long time. 11 minutes and 35 seconds. So here's what I want to do. I've always tell people that because of our green windows, look over here, because of our green windows, it feels like we're at the bottom of a swimming pool every time that we're in the church here. I I long to get rid of those. Whose idea were the green windows? Don? It's the in-laws? We got to go. We got to get some green. We're going to get rid of those green windows at some point. So it doesn't feel like we're, the only thing we're missing is like the smell of chlorine in here. We, like we don't, we don't have that, but it does feel like a strange like swimming pool bathroom situation when you walk in here sometimes and the light's shining a certain way. It's without the scent. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this. I know, I know it's hard, but I want everybody to participate in this. Uh, you got your masks on. So, but you still have to hold your nose. Uh, Douglas is going to be the timer. Can you get like a stopwatch going? And we're going to see if you can make it to 30 seconds and if you can make it to a minute. And don't cheat, right? So everybody has to actually hold your nose. Everybody actually has to take a deep breath in. And we're going to see how long you can last. And Douglas, will you tell me like every 15 seconds? We got to 15, we got 30, we got to 45 uh, I'll, I'll tell you when to start. Everybody get ready. Get the, get the hand ready. This is what I teach people when I baptize them. You got to hold your nose because when you come up out of that water, it's going to go right up your nose, right? Hold your nose. All right, ready? One, two, three. Hold your breath. Hold your nose. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. It's starting to feel a little longer now. Are we at 15 yet? 
15 seconds? That seems like a long 15 seconds. You guys look very awkward right now, too. <laughs> once, you, once you lose it, just take your hand down. I'll know. Once you take your hand down, I'll know that you've lost it. Everybody starting to feel it now? 30 seconds. 30 seconds. I don't know that we have any 11-minute people in here. couple people still hanging on. Blake, I know you're cheating. 45. <laughs> somebody's, somebody's getting sick back there. No, it's not worth it. It's not worth dying over. One minute. One minute. Raise your hand if you're able to make it one minute. How many of you feel like you could have gone much longer than one minute? Well, don't stop now. You, you stop now. You're good. You're good. You're good. Here's the thing. Listen, this is what the ancient world understood. This is really significant and really beautiful. You know why you can't hold your breath? Because you don't own your life. You can't hold it because it doesn't belong to you. It was given by God at creation. God breathed into us. And so when Jesus, at the end of his life, says, into your hands, I commit my spirit, I commit my breath, what he's saying is, I choose when I take my last breath and I'm giving it back to God. This is the victory cigar. This is Jesus saying, no one else gets to take this away from me. He's saying to everyone, the one who betrayed me didn't take my last breath. The Jewish leaders who arrested me didn't take my last breath. The crowd who cried crucified me did not take my last breath. Pilate who sentenced me did not take my last breath. The soldiers who beat me did not take my last breath. The soldiers who mocked me did not take my last breath. The soldier who pierced my side did not take my last breath. The empire of Rome did not take my last breath. The evil and principalities that rule and run in this world did not take my last breath. I gave it back. What a beautiful way to live. My life doesn't belong to me. It, it was bought at a price. It's been given to me as a gift, so every moment is a gift. Every breath is a moment that I've given by the Father that I get to execute in this world, that I get to live, that I get to be a part of it, that I get to love, that I get to be with the people I love and serve the people that I'm a part of. Every moment is full of possibilities and every breath matters because it was all given to us. We try and fight the end, don't we? In any way imaginable, we try and fight the end. There's this awful thing that happens when you're at somebody's deathbed and they're just fighting to get the last breath out. I don't know if you've been there. It's just terrifying. It's awful. There's so many moments where I've been there at the end for somebody. I'm like, Lord, just take them. Because they're in pain and it hurts and they're fighting to keep that breath going. I feel like that's how we're living right now in our country. We're all fighting to breathe. We're all fighting to get free. We're all fighting one another. There's this constant fighting. We exercise and we diet excessively so we can live longer. We use beauty products and cosmetic surgery to keep us looking young because we're all afraid of getting old. We accumulate more and more property and money and toys so that we can be more secure. We strive to know more and more so that at least at the end of our lives we know something. And all of it, we don't really know how to give our breath back to God. We fight to hold it. 
It's like collectively, as a culture, as a community, we're just holding our breath. We're just fighting every day. When we talk about this, oftentimes we talk about this idea of control versus consent. There's a way that I can live where I try and control every outcome. I try and control everything that happens in my life. If there's a danger that could possibly happen, I try and control it so that I don't, so that it doesn't happen. And not only do we try and control our lives, then we start to try and control the people that we love. We try and control their lives. Anybody have a helicopter parent in your life? Right? A parent that just kind of hovered around everywhere? Like, I, I love new, watching new parents. My parents, my kids are old now and, and, and they're doing their thing. But when you watch a new parent, like their child, like every time their child falls, it's like the greatest tragedy that ever happened. Like all they do is walk around like this, like, like don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. Like they're chasing their child. Like, like if they get a bruised knee, that's the end of existence. It's what you do when, when, you, when you have, we did the same thing with Cole, poor guy. We're just all trying to control everything and control all the outcomes. And we try and control our days versus consent to God's ways. And there's a way that we can live that's actually not so much about me controlling every moment and me making everything work and me figuring everything out. It's just I jump in the river and the river takes me where God wants to take me. And I trust that he's good. And I trust that he's the one that holds my breath. I trust the one that he's the one that controls my bank account. I trust the one that he loves my kids more than I do and that he's a better dad than I am. I trust that he's good and that he's with us. I trust that the Psalms are filled with these kinds of passages. My days belong to you. My steps belong to you. My fate belongs to you. My days are numbered. Our times are in your hands. So rather than control, we consent. So much of my life has been about control. Uh, if you guys know me, and some of you guys know me well, I, I, my, one of my greatest fears, and I don't know, I, there's a therapist somewhere that'll work this out with me. I don't know where this came from or why this is, but one of my greatest fears is dancing in front of other humans. And I, I'm very serious about it. Like, I'm traumatized by this. I look back at my life like there wasn't a dancing moment, like my parents didn't dress me up and make me dance in front of people. Like, I don't know where it comes from, but I have this thing in me, like, if the worst thing that you all could do to me right now is force me to dance in front of you. The Lord's gonna make me do it at some point. Like, I mean, this is gonna be like a David moment, right? I'm gonna have to dance in the aisles or something. I don't know, because like, the Holy Spirit's gonna really show up that day, right? Uh, but but I, I, I'm terrified of this. And so like, we, every time Sarah and I go to a wedding or something like that, like, I just kind of sit on the side. I try and find somebody, I try and find like the other introvert that just wants to talk to me. I just hang out over there, and, and, and Sarah gets a couple slow dances out of it. One, because I love her more than my fear of dancing, and two, because I'm a little afraid of her. Uh, and so I, I, she gets a couple dances. Uh, but, but there's this thing where, like, here's what I know about dancing. Two people can't lead. Like, you can't have both of you 
calling the directions. And, and dancing is this kind of weird thing. I don't, I don't know how to do it, but, but apparently, like, what happens when you're doing it is, like, one person's kind of steering, and one person's kind of guiding, and the other person's kind of following, and you kind of just, it, it just happens, right? There's this consent that, like, I'm trusting that you know where I'm supposed to move, and we're going to move together, and, and good dancers figure out how to do this together, right? I've watched Dancing with the Stars, like, three times in my life for, like, five minutes each. And, and what happens in it is, like, they, they kind of figure out how to move together, and there's this thing where they're just working together in tandem. I feel like much of my life has been God trying to guide me and steer me and me fighting every minute of the way and be doing like the kid in the car seat, right? The, I'm not getting in. <laughs> but there is a way to live where our life is fully surrendered to God. There's a way to live where we can have a faith that's so big and a trust that's so beautiful that we can say, even my breath belongs to you, and I trust you. What's interesting is at the cross, the moment that everybody recognized that Jesus was actually the Savior was this moment. It's this moment where the Roman soldier says, certainly this guy was the Son of God. It's this moment where it says the crowd actually beats their chest because they realized they had cried out for the death of an innocent man. It's this moment where people notice something distinct and different about Jesus that made them say, that's the Son of God. And I think what they noticed was that he ended his life completely, 100% trusting the Father. And I, my days are numbered, guys. I don't know when I'm going, but someday it's going to happen. And I pray that on that day I can say, it is finished, and into my hands I commit my spirit. So this Sunday, here's this beautiful thing that's coming up. Holy Week, we're going to enter in. We're going to stand at the foot of the cross on Friday, and we're going to mourn. We're not going to celebrate we're going to walk away from that night knowing the pain and the hurt that Christ went through. We're going to look at his life at Gethsemane. We're going to look at the pain that he experienced in following the Father to the end because following him to the end actually costs you something. And we're going to pay attention to all of those, and we're going to look and we'll know that we're the soldiers, that we're the ones who cried out for him to be crucified, that we're the ones who mocked him, that we're the ones who betrayed him. And so we'll repent of all of that. But here's the great thing. Here's the amazing thing about all this. We've been talking about the last words, and we've spent the last seven weeks talking about the last words of Jesus. But there's a bunch more words coming. And so here's your teaser for next week. Here's your, this is my brilliant marketing plan to get people there for Easter. This isn't the last thing that Jesus said. It's not over. And it's not done. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the model of your son. We thank you for the picture of Jesus, the obedient servant who poured himself out for you, who laid down everything to follow you. I thank you for the model of Jesus who finished the kingdom assignment he was given, who pursued his kingdom dream and laid it all out. And I thank you for the picture of Jesus who to the very end trusted you with his very life 
with his very breath and gave it back to you. And Lord, I just pray for us as a family, as a community, as a church over the next week that we would see you the way that you want us to see you. I pray that you give us new eyes and new perspective to see the cross and the resurrection in a new way. And I pray, Lord, right now in the middle of a hurting world and a hurting community and a broken kind of experience that we've all walked through in the last year, I just pray that this Sunday, I pray that you would bring new life, Lord. Yeah, would you guys pray with me for that this week? That this Sunday, like there's a page that's turned. There's something new that happens. Like the atmosphere of our church actually shifts because of the Holy Spirit and because of the resurrection. So Heavenly Father, we pray for that. We pray that you would shift the atmosphere. We pray that you would change our hearts. We pray that you would change our minds. We pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. We pray for new believers. We pray that you would proclaim free, heal, and restore the way that your son did. And we pray that we would get to be a part of all of it. And so thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, Father, for the resurrection. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to move into a time of communion, and I don't know if there's a more fitting time to remember Christ on the cross, to pay attention to his body and his blood that was shed for us and broken for us. So if you've got the elements with you, just take some time in a minute. We're going to sing a song, just kind of a celebration of how good Jesus is. But in this time, just start thinking about what's the new thing that the Father wants to do in you? What's the new thing he wants to invite you to? And let's celebrate together.